Now, I had a number of great questions come in after last Sunday's sermon, um, which, is, which is good uh, and was incredible, the number of different questions that people had. And one of the questions that came in is, hey, where, where was the grace in that sermon last week? Um, and so one of the things I want to point out to you is that the way that we view our service is the sermon is not the most important part, by the way. Um, it's the whole service. Call to worship to benediction is one event. And if you notice, we spend the first half of our service really focusing on the grace of God. So the first thing that we do right away is recognize God as creator and God as father. This is the call to worship. And as I pointed out last week, the first song is always about God the Father. Because he's the one who sent Jesus. He's the one that we're being redeemed back into relationship with, yes? So we want to make sure that we don't lose him in that. If you notice, the next thing that we really do is we confess our sin. If you notice in that confession, we say we can confess because we've already been forgiven. We can, we can be honest about who we really are as the creature because the Lord our God has been so honest about who he is as creator and redeemer, right? And so that gives us an opportunity to do that. And if you've noticed, the confession comes straight from the scripture that we use in the sermon so that you've already interacted, hopefully, with that. The next thing that we get is the assurance of pardon. And the assurance of pardon is, to, is the grace, right? And there's a reason that we don't do any exposition at that time. You know why? Because man's words fail to be an assurance. Only the word of God is truly assurance. So we pick, if you notice, a very clear scripture. We don't go to Obadiah for the assurance of pardon or Nahum or somewhere odd like I do other places. But we, there we want it to be very clear. And notice that whole time you've been standing. Why? Why? Because you are a recipient. You're standing to receive something, which is grace, the whole first part of the service. When do you get to sit down? After the assurance has been pronounced, you can finally rest, sit, and then we talk about, all right, now then how then should we live after all this grace has been given? That's where that, the song comes in for the offering. And the first thing we do is we give. It's an opportunity for you to reflect. Do you understand what's happened in the first half of the service? Do you understand who you are, who God is provisionally? And then the sermon is about how then should we live that we've received this grace. As Brian Chapel, who loves grace, says, it's not godliness that saves you, but Christian faith properly understood is lived. It's tangible. It's not this endless failing and endless uh, uh, groveling for grace. No, you are more than victors. Now, are you going to be perfect? No, that's why we got to do this every single Sunday. Because you lack perfection yet, as do I. And so then, by the time we get to the benediction, we have just been overwhelmed by the whole thing. And that parting benediction is the blessing. The blessing that you now receive having understood that grace and understood how then you should live. So, understand that everything we do in our service is, as a term I like to use, pedagogical. Which means it teaches us something. It's all tangible. It's not... We don't just randomly pick stuff. And so I wanted you to see that you should be encountering grace all throughout our service. And if you remember, one of the things I said about the Sabbath is that to, for us to be able to gather, to do this, this is grace, right? For us to gather in a room full of people that we barely know, really, if you want to be honest, even what you think you know about them is not near the truth, not all the way down. For us to be able to gather in a room full of people and do what we're doing, that is grace. For the Lord to give us a day and instruct us and love us, that is grace. The grace is in the thing itself, not in the words or the explanation that I'll give every single time. Now, was Jesus void last week? No, made it very clear. That in order for us to keep the Lord's day, we have to recognize the finished work of Christ allows us to do it and actually enjoy it. Because apart from Jesus, it's just a day of duty, right? Not a day given. So I wanted to make sure I said that up front so you can be paying attention if you haven't noticed those things before. Some of you have, and it's been beautiful. But I want you to get it. I want you to be able to appreciate all the elements for what they are. They're not arbitrary. And they all mean something.
If you would, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. This is where we'll find ourselves this morning. Um, let, me, let me give a, a, a slight warning uh, about this passage first. Um, it is probably one of the passages I'm most passionate about. Like you guys were like, well, last week you were pretty passionate about Exodus and Deuteronomy, so... Wow, how's this going to go? But Isaiah 58 was the first, uh, in seminary, uh, the first paper that I ever wrote was on Isaiah 58. And um, it, it just really, it was a, in writing that paper, it opened up my eyes to so many things all throughout Scripture. The beauty of the interconnectedness of Scripture, the, the call that we are to not just wallow in grace, but that we are to be lifted up and to live in it in such a way that reflects our gracious God to this entire world. That how we live is as much evangelism as anything you will ever say. Um, your life is what is going to be the thing that most people will judge your faith by. So that can sound like a burden to many of you, but we have to recognize that, that to live in light of the Lord, if that's how you were wired and created, if this is what you were created for, that's not burden. The real burden is for you to live in antithesis to how you were created, right? The real burden is to try to save yourself when you can't. The real burden is to try to be God when you're not. That is the burden. Not to live in such a way that the Lord says is best for us and is good. Those of you who are parents, we ought to know this best of all, right? And, and how often do our kids say, Psh, you guys are goofy. You don't know anything. You haven't lived with a cell phone like I have. You haven't heard of the internet web net thing. Um, I, I know better than that. And so, uh, so, so there's all this push and pull, right? And we do it too because we're children. We too are children of the Most High God, the Creator. And so often we're trying to usurp that Creator-Creature distinction all the time. And so we're constantly trying to take... Now think about this for a second. God says, just, just hear it in miniature. God says, hey, I, I want you guys to take a day off to enjoy me. And we're like, what? No, no, not that. Why would I do that? Oh, man, now I really, oh, God, why, why? Why a day off from Pharaoh when he says make bricks with less but give me more? I love that. That's awesome. Let me do that. And we wonder why we're so exhausted and we say we never have time for anything. And one of the questions that came up, and I thought it was a great question, is how do I keep from turning the Sabbath into just another checklist, right? Because one of the things, that, some of the things that I said was that, that it, this is a day for evangelism in a sense. Now, so you don't turn that into, it's not a day for you to kind of create evangelism strategy and, and, and kind of figure out who you're going to attack. Um, but instead, it's a day for you to live in such a way that your neighbors go, hey, they're different. And it is also an awesome day for you to invite people into the celebration. Are celebrations burdensome? Shouldn't be. We went to one last night for the adoption party for the Sours. What a beautiful thing to gather around and celebrate. The adoption of little Lizzie and Matt uh, um, um, David, no, Matt was not adopted in that night. Uh, <laughs> kind of he was by Lizzie and David. Um, but anyway, so what, what a beautiful thing is celebration. And how good is our God? He says, hey, I want you to every week take one day to just celebrate all that is good and rest in what I have done, not what you have done, not what you will do, and invite people into that, being cognizant of those around you who don't yet know how to celebrate who don't yet know that this day is good. That shouldn't be burdensome to us. That should be gift. That should be opportunity. That should be honor, right? Now, 
having said all that, we still get it tangled up, don't we? There's still a necessity for the Spirit to do work in us. And there's a huge gap for some of us from that re, what we have thought about the Sabbath, all the baggage that we have and whether or not it's the Lord's Day and all the stuff we want to fight about. Again, fighting so that we don't get a day off, which is just such oddity to me. Um, but, you know, all this fighting that we do, and instead, when the Lord's just saying, listen, it's a day of grace. You're going to get it. In fact, I'm going to take an entire eternity to teach you about it. Hebrews 4, the eternal Sabbath. Uh, it's gonna that's why it takes so long. That's why we're so bad at it. That's why it's going to take an eternity, right? And so, so here God is saying, take, this is a means of grace. When you start feeling it as burden, when you start feeling it as, as a duty that is not good for you, you need to ask some pretty hard questions and talk to some other people who can help you get that straight. For those of us who think that it was just the Old Testament God being nice one day out of seven, and that the New Testament God says every day is a Sabbath, that's just not true. That's to actually wash it away and lose all pedagogical value and all missional value. Because the truth of the matter is, we don't live every day as a Sabbath. Not even close. And if you really want to create a burden for yourself, try doing that. If you have a hard time taking one day, try making yourself do the mental gymnastics to get to the seven-day approach. And so here the Lord is being good to us. This is a means of grace. Let us use it as such. And as I said to you, for some of you, this is going to be incredibly hard because you have, the world has been designed around you such that it makes it, it's at war with this. And so remember what I said. Even if all you can do is just take a couple of hours to even have this mindset, start there. Right? God is okay with the pitiful offering too as a starting place. He's not okay with a pitiful offering in the end, which is why he sent Jesus as the ultimate offering so that yours wouldn't get lost. And so recognize that all that we're saying about the Sabbath is that it is a means of grace and it helps to shape us. Now, there was also, I made the comment, if you don't have time to serve the poor, what a great day to do it. But it's also in the way you do it. How you would serve the poor on the Sabbath is to help them to celebrate, help them to see that their poverty doesn't have the final say. Even how you serve the poor on the Sabbath ought to look different than how you would serve them other days of the week. And you have this incredible breadth of creative nuance, right? How many places in Scripture are there actual detailed instructions of what you should and shouldn't do on the Sabbath? There aren't very many at all. And why is that? Because the Lord loves creativity. We're co-creators. We, we get to express that celebration in these incredible and beautiful ways. I know that makes some of you nervous who are probably engineer types. That's okay. You too can enjoy the Sabbath in your own little structured way. And so, uh, and so it's, it's, it's there for us to enjoy, not get all freaked out about and misuse and not use at all. Because we're like, well, I'd just soon not do it since I don't understand it. To heck with it. And so, as we hear the, from this passage, I want you to hear all that so you don't feel beat up because he's going to come out swinging. And I'm probably going to get loud at some point. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I can't hear it either. And my own heart is hardened. And my own will is to use the Sabbath for my own good. And my own will is not to serve the poor, but to serve myself alone. Because I wonder if God is really there. That is my own natural instinct. And so the passion for me is not because I'm pouring it out on you. It's I'm asking for it to be poured out upon myself. I'm hollering because I'm deaf. Not because you are. But you are too, as it turns out. Many of us, right? So don't take that as Cameron's just up there being mean, yelling all the time. Yeah, maybe, but, uh, but it's because I'm, I'm trying to deal with my own brokenness and my own, my own need for Jesus. And I get to do it more public than you do. So let's turn to the text, if you will, and uh, ask a couple of questions before we even get started. There's a, there's a verse that's pretty critical to this passage. In fact, there's two, and we dealt with one of them back in the uh, sermon series when we were going through um, the issue on missions. And in fact, it was when we did the Compassion International Sunday. For those of you who have Compassion Kids, I hope you're keeping up with them, and I hope it's a blessing to you and your family. I want to remind you, continue to pray for those kids, continue to give, support them, and uh, let the Lord's work be international. 
One of the things we talked about was Isaiah chapter one, where God makes it very clear. I am so sick of your solemn assemblies. I am sick of the way you keep the Sabbath. I'm sick of the way that you do what you do. And if you remember what he says is your religious activity ought to result in what? A positive ethic that displays the glory of the Lord, which means you love the orphan and the widow. One of the greatest and easiest ways to do that. And so he's not saying, love the orphan and widow so I will love you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, love the orphan and widow because I have loved you who were both an orphan and a widow without me. Love because you were loved first. And let your religious activities, all of them, push you this way. Come, let us reason together and you will be made as white as snow. Remember that. And so then it picks back up in Isaiah 56. And let me read it to you, verses 1 and 2. It says, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing evil. Now, what did he just say there? If you keep the Sabbath, you'll get saved, okay? Just take a day off and I'll love you. No, he's saying, you get to keep this day because I have loved you. And that day will shape you. It will actually turn and, and change everything. All the minutes of all the other days of your week will be transformed because of this. I'm making children cry. I'm not very good at this. And so, so he's saying the Sabbath, because of what it means and what it is, and it was the first day that was given in creation. Remember the reasoning that was given for why it became law. But before it was law, it was creation ordinance and gift. It had to become law because we don't want the gift. And we dang sure don't want the giver. We want control. And so here he's saying not that the Sabbath saves you at all, but it helps you in your savedness. It helps you become what you would not become. That's the definition of a means of grace. The other means of grace are the Lord's Supper, baptism, which we'll see later today, um, the preaching of the word and prayer. Those are all ways in which we are shaped. And what does it do? Shapes us into the image of God. Remember, that's the point. The point is not that people would think that you are awesome. Not at all. Not at all. The point is not that, that, you, would be, um, that you would be high and lifted up first. No, that only as you are transformed to the image that you would then be high and lifted up because you glorify the Lord your God. That is your greatest joy because that's what you were created for. Remember the first question of the catechism. It's not just that you glorify the Lord, but that you would also enjoy him. How many of you struggle, if we're honest, rhetorical question, because I don't want to see this many hands go up, it is a Presbyterian service. How many of you struggle with enjoying the Lord? Well, look at how good he is to you to say, hey, here's a whole day to try, here's a whole day to work on that. To do the commerce, the spiritual commerce of the soul, the market day of the souls, the Puritans called it. So, the question for us as we wade into this is what impact should the Sabbath have on how we live on the whole rest of our lives, right? Because if we don't understand how it's shaping us, we'll lose what it really means and how it orders time, right? In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but the seven-day week is a, is, was, was a, um, something that was based on creation and was a Jewish thing, uh, it was, even before it was a Jewish thing, it was a creation thing. Other cultures wanted to do different things. And so how did, why, why would they do a seven-day week? Because the Sabbath ordered all of time. And so should it do for us, because it's not just a Jewish thing, it's a God thing, it's how we're designed. And so the impact the Sabbath should have is that it should change us. It should transform us into people who care about different things and about how, how time is used. If we, as we said last week, if you look like the world, how will anybody know who and what you are? What covenant are you, are you a part of? Who is your Lord based on how you spend your time? And so Isaiah is going to co confront the people because they here are using religious things for all the wrong reasons. In fact, they're using religious things in much the same way as their pagan neighbors. They think that God is a cosmic candy machine. Definitively, that is not what he is. Definitively. 
He is not do this, ring the bell, get the exact amount back out. Because you will always, if that's going to be the case, you will always, always, always get what you deserve. And what do you deserve? Not his grace, not his gift. None is righteous. No, not one. So if you want to treat God like a cosmic candy machine, know that it makes you inhuman. For you to use religious practices for your own self-service is to dehumanize, de-evolve yourself into something you were not created to be. So let's turn to the text, Isaiah 58. We'll read verses 1 through 5. And we're going to see here God's grace and the people's sin. God says to Isaiah, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? and you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Now what we've got to recognize straight away is that God in, in great grace is saying confront the people, Isaiah. Now we've asked this question here before and I, I think it probably hasn't ever changed. How many of you love being confronted? You just love it. You're like, man, I hope somebody sees me do something wrong and calls me out on it. I hope somebody sees how I behave in the car and pulls me aside. I hope somebody sees the way I treat my wife or my husband or my child and pulls me aside and tells me the truth. I really hope that. I hope that someone knows me well enough to know the actual depths of my own heart. I'd love to be so vulnerable that people would know how bad I really am so they could help me. How many of us really, that's, man, that's our greatest joy. Well, see, right away, we got to recognize that this doesn't, this doesn't jive with, with us in our natural state. And as fallen beings, we hate this, by the way. And so we always are pushing against it and we always try to cheapen grace and throw it against it. But no, the grace is, in fact, that God is not judging them first. Notice the Lord is taking the time and he says, cry aloud and do not hold back. Make sure that every single one of them can hear you. I don't want that any should be lost because of ignorance. Isn't that grace? Isn't it grace that the Lord would say, no, you are killing yourselves. You are destroying the image in which you were created. You are going after a false God with how you're doing this. Don't go there. It will kill you. Or do we place a higher value on, Lord, just let me learn for myself. Let me make my own decisions because I, as quasi-sovereign, quasi-omniscient, quasi-omnipotent, We'll make the right one every time. No, you won't. No, you won't, because I know I haven't and still don't left to my own devices. How gracious is our God that he would want to make sure that we hear the truth. And think about Isaiah. How many parties do you think he got invited to with stuff like this? Oh, there's the guy who ran around naked with the thing on that one time. And there's the guy who's always crying out on us. He's going to see something that's going to turn bad. Let's just let him stay at home tonight. You got to understand, this wasn't, this wasn't something that Isaiah was biting at the bit to do. It was going to be hard on him too. You got to understand that anybody who loves you enough to come and tell you the truth, it really is a burden upon them and that it is not easy and that they actually are genuinely trying to love you and care for you and you should not set your jaw like flint and your ears as hard as diamond so that you can't hear. This isn't easy for anybody. I know a lot of you think I really enjoy being confrontational. I really don't, actually. 
because I can't be all the way confrontational, right? Like when I was a radical anti-theist, I could be, we could get in a fist fight. Like I could take it all the way down. But now I can't do that. See, I'm limited in what I can do confrontationally. So it's not as much fun as it used to be. And I really didn't like it then either because it was out of self-hatred that I did all that stuff. It was me I hated, not the person in front of me. It was me who was the distorted image, not them. And so, so we got to recognize straight away, we already don't like this. We already don't like this sermon, right? And so it makes it harder for us to hear, but what I want you to know is God's loving us by doing this. He's loving us by leaving it in the Bible. If it didn't matter, it would have been cut out. But it mattered, and he knew we'd need to hear it again, so he left it in there. And in fact, it gets repeated again in the New Testament in a wonderful place called Matthew 25, where Jesus decides who are sheep and goats based on something we're going to hear in just a few minutes. And so he's crying aloud, making sure they know, and he's saying, hey, look, you think you're doing all this religious stuff. You really think you're seeking me, but it's not me you're after. Right? You, you think that you are doing good things. This should be a warning to us all. It's a warning much like Matthew 7 when Jesus says to those who say, look at all that we did in your name. And he says, depart from me for I never knew you. I don't think there's a more terrifying verse in all of the scriptures. It is a warning to us to not, don't presume you are something. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Return again and again to the word of God and return again and again to remind yourself who you really are and who God really is. Because his mercy is new every morning because we need it every morning because we fall every day, don't we? Every day we go blind. Every day it seems like we go deaf in some part. That sounds hopeless, but it's, it's really not because he's always providing in the spirit for all that we need, even through his prophets, even through his word, through all these things. He loves us so much. He gives us so many avenues to hear. And we grow somehow, some way, year after year. It doesn't, it changes. And we get to grow in these things and amen. Right? And so he's saying, you think you're doing these things. And then he gives a response. They say, look, we fasted and you don't do anything. Now the fast is probably being referred to here. There's not many ordered in the scriptures. Is one from Leviticus 23, 26 through 32, which is the day of atonement which has the Sabbath connected to it, which is going to be very important for what God's going to challenge them with. And so they, here they are making a big deal out of this fast that, that was not even the main portion of who they were supposed to be. They're, they're ignoring the Sabbath week in and week out. They're all worried about the one time in a year that they acted like they were being religious. Does that sound familiar? I know we don't have any Christmas or Easter folks in here because it ain't either one of those days. But it's still prominent in our culture. Notice, people who show up on those days will often say, God, why are you doing this to me the rest of the year when things don't go right? And yet they ignore all of the other means of grace. And so here, in celebrating this Day of Atonement, they want to be heard. Now let me ask you, have you ever... Um, gotten angry because you feel like God's not recognizing your amazing gifts? That those jerks at the local church have not yet given you the opportunity to preach up front, even though you've never been to seminary, even though you've never done anything in the church, you haven't even set up one chair, even though you haven't done anything at all, you feel like you deserve a quick place of prominence. You're unwilling to do the lesser things, you just want the greater thing. You want an audience, right? You don't want to go out and evangelize and start a Bible study in your neighborhood. You want me to gather 30 or 40 people so you can unpack your views on infralapsarianism. No, I won't. How often do you feel like what you're doing is not being recognized? How often do you feel like that, that you're not getting enough return on your religious investment? Right? This is us too, isn't it? So we need to hear this. And so God goes on and says to them, Behold, you fast only to quarrel. You're not even letting people enjoy the very day you say you're recognizing. You say you're recognizing the day of atonement, but yet you're making them work. You're, you're fighting. Is that, what, I, is that what, what the sacrifices are for? Is that what Jesus is going to come to do so we can fight better? So we can be more articulate on Facebook? So that we can take people out with razor-sharp arguments instead of loving them in relationship? Is that what he died for? 
so that we could strike with a wicked fist? That's not what he died for. And that's not even what God gave the Day of Atonement for, which points to whom? Jesus. What does every Sabbath day do? Point to Jesus. What does every Lord's Day do? Point to the return of Jesus. So this ought to shape us, but instead they were being turned into something monstrous, if you notice. If our religious activity somehow makes us meaner, you're doing the wrong thing. If somehow, some way, you are, you are even less forgiving the longer you attend church, something is wrong. If you are less loving than you were last year, something is broken within you and needs to be redeemed and needs to be dealt with. Amen? If somehow, some way, we're not growing more loving, which, by the way, is how the world will know who we are. Where did we get this wrong? Maybe we got it wrong at the fount. Maybe we got it wrong because we're so worn out from trying so hard to please Pharaoh instead of the Lord our God. Maybe it's because we've ignored the means of grace and instead turned God into a cosmic candy machine and said, if you don't give me what I want, I will not give you what you want. And so the Lord in great grace, though, he doesn't stop here. Right? He could pronounce judgment and he would be perfectly justified, would he not? Couldn't he wipe them all out? This house of Jacob, the very people of God. But he doesn't. Listen to what Old Testament scholar John Oswalt says about this passage. He says, instead of their religion making them a blessing, which I want to pause there. <clears throat> if who we are at Christ's community is not making us more of a blessing, or you more of a blessing to those around you, please go find another church because we're killing you. If somehow, someway, what we're doing is not setting you free, is not making you more of a blessing to those around you, go find a place where you can flourish because this, this is deadly. Love us well enough, though, to tell us, on, uh, tell us about it before you go so we can try to repent and fix it as well because we too need to hear. Love each other well in this. So if instead of their religion making them more of a blessing as God intended, it made them a curse. Interestingly, the people were being caught up in what God had not particularly commanded, fasts, and were neglecting what he had specifically commanded, the Sabbath feast. They were whipping themselves scarred. Remember, what does Jesus say about fasting in the New Testament? How should you look? And you should look like it has been horrible and you're super religious, right? Isn't that what the passage says? No, you should look refreshed because that is even a grace to you. You shouldn't go around looking like you've eaten the worst lemon you ever found. So are there ways in which your religious practices have become self-serving? This is, the, you need to wrestle with this question right here. In fact, we could just call it right now. I won't, but we could. Are there ways in which your religious practices are not developing you into a blessing? Because if they're not, something is broken and wrong. This is not what you were intended to be. And do you recognize that, God, that it is God's grace in calling you to repent, to even confront you with the question, is him being gracious to you? He owes you nothing at this point. And do you recognize that in being called to repent, there's a greater freedom for you to walk in and being obedient by faith, to him. Obedience is not a bad word. I promise you. It's what we were designed for, but obedience to the things that actually bring blessing and, and, and renewal. Amen? All right, let's turn back to the text, verses 6 through 12. Here God is going to say what, he really, what really should be happening because of our religious stuff. Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. 
If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the breach, the restorers of the streets to dwell in. Now who among you, that last description, verses um, 11 and 12, would say, I don't want to be any of that. I don't want to be a well-watered garden. That's stupid. I, I like being dry and parched. I like death. I went through a whole gothic phase. I get it. I like tearing stuff up. I'm a deconstructionist. Right? I'm better at tearing stuff up. Me too. Trust me. My wife can tell you I'm a wicked deconstructionist. It is my great gift. I can tear stuff down with the best of them. I may not be able to offer much in return after I've torn it all down and it lays in ruins. But this says that is not my fate. This says that I can be the opposite of what I am naturally. Amen? That I don't have to be left to only death and ruin. No, we get to participate in the making of all things new in some sense. Between the now and the not yet and when Jesus comes back. We can't fix it up till he gets back, by the way. He is the one that makes us perfect and able to finally get it done. But what we do here matters, and this says that. Our religious activity should lead us to do the things that God wants done, which is redemptive. I'm not going to beat you up about whether or not you love the poor. I know you guys think that's probably coming, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. And I don't think that's what needs to be done. I want you instead to, to give greater importance to how, how are your religious activities shaping you into a repair of the streets to dwell in. Now, you may say, Cameron, I don't know if you've seen this world, but it ain't in great shape. And there's a lot. Well, this is why the Lord doesn't call us to fix it all by ourselves. Remember that. You as an individual are not called to individually do anything. You're called into community where we can do better than, together than we could ever do alone. And you have been sovereignly placed, as the book of Acts would tell us, in this context. You're not in Africa or Kenya or Australia or China. You're not there now. You're here, right? It's not to say we don't care about the things that happen there, but there's only so much we can do from afar. But we're here. So how are you doing this here? Where you are. I don't care if you long for a distant land. You're here for now. And until you go, you should do all that you can to make where you are better. And do so making sure the gospel is clear. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Babylon Bee, which is the onion version, Christian version. There was a headline that was pretty funny. It says, man feeds the poor and uses food if necessary. Right. Which is a misquote of the whole St. Francis who never said, uh, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. No, you got to use words. The gospel is word. There's no way for people to just figure it out by looking at you, how you park your car. Right? Right? <laughs> Brian had some car parking problems this morning and I tried to encourage him. India has got him all jacked up. Uh, Brian and Mandy Stock are with us, by the way, if you could take time to see them. They're one of our missionaries from India. All right, so, so we, we have to work in this together and we have to use the gifts that God has given us. We can't all do the same thing. This is why the Lord in great grace brings great variance and creativity and gives us all this raw material to work with. And what are we doing? What are you doing? How are we doing it together? What are some ways in which we can grow in that? And so just remember that so much of what the Sabbath should do is it should make us want to bring freedom. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Some of you may be passionate about racial reconciliation issues. Work in that. Work hard. Some of you may be passionate about orphans, widows, uh, old folks' homes, uh, geriatric homes. I, I think I'm may have offended someone. I'm sorry uh, for the vernacular. Um, there's tons of places to work. Local school systems. 
public school, private school, it doesn't matter. Work hard where you are. Use your gifts and let the Sabbath help shape you into a blessing to those places. Listen to what Marva J. Dawn says of this in her book, Keeping the Sabbath Holy. The proclamation of the gospel, the faith that God lo loves, God's love frees us to love, is made more credible when it is tangibly accompanied by works of love and obedience to God's covenant instructions to care for the needy. Notice this, what God just said in Isaiah. He just said, all that religious nonsense that you guys are doing, you're calling a fast. Instead, here's what I'd rather you do with your time. Go love the poor because that's why I'm at work. Go and get engaged where people are suffering, where the light's not breaking in, and celebrate. Because all of heaven's going to break out in a party when one of them comes. So we are called to be tangible in how we live out this faith. So how does your treatment of others, especially those in need, affect your, your, your experience of God's presence and glory? I can't tell you how many times pastorally I hear people say, I just, I just don't feel God. I understand that. I really do. I have been in some very arid and dry places. But I can tell you what the anecdote always was. To go where he is at work and see him break forth in places that I didn't think was possible. And sometimes that's just even with your neighbor next door. Sometimes that's with an aunt or an uncle who you think had never come to Jesus. Sometimes that is serving in a rescue mission. Sometimes that is serving all kind of places. But somehow, some way, we have lost the thread that we can experience the presence of the Lord in the places where he is at work and that we should do. And it's not just one place, which is good news to those of us who have a bunch of creative ways of approaching this. And where is God inviting you to join in his redemptive work? Every single one of you, he's given a gift. Every single one of you. And this is why we at Christ Community don't try to use up all your time and your gifts. Because we want you to be able to express it. And we want to be able to equip you to do that. And let you have the opportunity and blessing to serve in a much broader way than we narrow-mindedly can come up with. Right? So we, we give you tons of, hopefully, freedom. That's why we don't have all this stuff to try to chew up all your time and energy. We'd only capture about 20% of you anyway. So we'd rather set all of you free instead of burden just 20% of you with nothing. Turn back to the text and let's see what the Sabbath, how it plays into this. <laughs> if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight. Hmm. It's great language. Um, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, and the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here Isaiah turns away from all the other religious activities and says, listen, you've been given something from the beginning that actually helps to shape you, that actually makes you into something beautiful. It's the Sabbath. Don't trample it underfoot. Hebrews picks up similar language, by the way. He's saying this is a means of grace. It is not for you to use. So, so many people get tangled up in not do your own pleasure. Oh, man, that must mean that it's got to be terrible. Like we can only eat like curds and whey that are left over and filled with maggots. That's real religion. No, it is not. Feast and invite people into it. And recognize who threw the feasts and who's going to throw the biggest feast of all at the marriage supper. Look back and look forward. Amen? So this is supposed to shape us into something, um, into something, not turn us into people who look like they're the most miserable people on all the planet. Who do, those of you who are restaurant workers, who are the worst, like what day of the week do you hate more than any other? Sunday, why? Horrible tippers, let's be honest. They're, they're not just bad, they are horrible. Maybe I'll leave you the million dollar track. Because your eternity is far more important than $5, trust me. Right? What, what, what? 
I get it. I mean, so we have this terrible witness on the most important day of the week. That's why I said to you, listen, if your conscience tells you don't eat out on the Sabbath, then don't. It's fine. But love people well all the rest of the week. And those people who are having to work on Sunday, it'd be great if you evangelized them Monday through Saturday. Right? And if you do eat out on the Sabbath because your conscience says somehow you're free, tip 30%. Tip 40, go crazy. And, and get to know the waitress's name. Pray for her or him. Let it be something different than what you would normally commercively do. Amen? Let the day in all parts be set apart and holy unto the Lord. Let it be a blessing. Let people see that you are riding on the heights of the earth and you are being fed well and feasting. J. Alec Motier, Old Testament scholar, says the Sabbath was not a fast, but a feast day. Isaiah counters the negativism of this day in verses 2 through 5, not only with the positive works and promises of verses 6 through 12, but the setting of the feast over against the fast. The Lord is more interested in enjoyment of his blessings through obedience than in self-imposed deprivations. Now, if it makes you angry that I would, I would suggest that you ought to be set free, there's some pages of the New Testament you've got to tear out. If it makes you angry that I would seem to suggest that you have some creative nuance, there's some stuff you've got to set fire to. Like if you would rather rip your, whip yourself scarred so that you look miserable and you're mean to everybody, something's wrong. That's, that's scripture, not me. And we ought to be people who, who evidence not only that the Sabbath is a delight, but all of life is a delight. And the Sabbath helps set the tone for that for us. We talked about the Lord's Day stuff last week. You have to go listen to that sermon. I'm not going to rehash all that now. As to, is it Lord's Day? Is it Sabbath? Like, what happened there? Um, we can talk about that if, if you need more information on that. But I, I just want to ask you, is the Sabbath a delight to you as the means of grace that God intended for it to be? Is, it, is the Lord's Day Sabbath, is, is the... Is the, is the resurrection of Jesus that ought to shape us in all facets that we celebrate this day? Is it the delight and the means of grace that it was intended to be to you? And if not, why? And what small incremental changes can you make to get there? And how can we serve you in that? How can we love you well? How can we teach you that? Because I understand this is very difficult. It took me years and years and years and years to even conclude that it was possible. So as we look back at Isaiah 58, it teaches us three things. One, God takes no pleasure in self-serving religious practices and calls for us to repent. And you've got to take time to, 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 to really look at is what you're doing self-serving. That takes a little bit of work and the Spirit will be kind enough to show you. Two, God invites us to participate in his redemptive mission to experience his presence. He invites us into redemption as ambassadors of reconciliation because he loves us, not because he is limited, not because he needs justification. Three, the Sabbath is a feast of delight given by God to remind us weekly to order our lives around his redemptive mission. Now, so many of you hear that as just, I, I know it. You're hearing it as great burden. You're like, God, that means we got to... No, it's, 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 it's not the burden that you think it is. It's just a reordering of how you even think about the good things you have. It's a reordering of how you think about how the minutes and days are being used. It's not that you got to do a, a lot more stuff. You probably need to be doing less, actually. Listen at what Joseph A. Piper Jr. says in his book, The Lord's Day, he says, the Israelites' return from exile is a picture of the victory promised in the new covenant. Now, Isaiah 58 is a picture of their return from exile. When he says, you will ride on the heights, what he's saying to them is, you're going to go into exile. It's going to look really bad, but you're going to come back and make things, you're going to repair the streets, you're going to repair the wall. He's pointing forward to Nehemiah, Ezra, um, and uh, um, other places where the temple is rebuilt and they come back. So, Joey Piper is picking up on that. He says, the Israelites return from exile 
as pictured in Isaiah 58, uh, especially 13 and 14, is a picture of the victory promised in the new covenant. In the New Testament, God promised us victory as well. In Christ, we are more than conquerors, Romans 8, 37. We shall have victory over Satan and sin. According to Isaiah 58, 14, God promises this victory to those who keep his day holy. Sabbath keeping is a means of grace that will help you die to sin and to grow in holiness. In the same way, baptism is a means of grace. And in the same way that the Sabbath day is a, a teachable moment for us and, and helps to shape us, so does baptism. <coughs> this is one of the reasons that we in Reformed circles talk about um, improving upon your baptism. Um, for those of you who are gonna, who've been baptized and you're going to bear witness to this baptism, this is a great opportunity for you to think back on all that that means, right? So this is a great opportunity for you to think about what does it mean that your sin has been buried with Christ, right? That God's promise was that once it's buried with Christ, far as the east is from the west, it, it will never be resurrected again. Do you get that? That if you are in Christ, as you witness this baptism, you are being reminded that that which you have done that is maybe the worst thing you could think of, to make you the worst person you could think of, is no longer true in Jesus. And that will never be spoken of, even spoken of again in the heavenlies. Amen? And that you would not only, that that's true, but that the rising of Jesus from the dead, the resurrection, the other promises that you would be able to walk in newness of life and have everything you need to be able to do everything we've talked about. The keeping of the Sabbath is not left to you. The loving of the poor is not left to you in your own strength. You've got the spirit. You've got the word. You've got the fellowship of saints. You've got all of these resources. This is how I can say we are without excuse. And so in this baptism that we'll see in just a moment, we have this incredible picture of all of the promises of God that he promised, not because of anything we'll do, right? This baptism doesn't save anyone. This baptism doesn't make someone new. It pictures, it's a sign of that God promised he would do exactly what he said he would do. And that those who are baptized, who respond in faith, would receive all of that. Now for those of you who are wondering, is there two different baptisms? I know this question's kind of come up in the, in the baptism class. No, there's not two different baptisms. The age of the person doesn't change the baptism. The cognition of the person doesn't change the sign and the seal of the baptism. Where we've gotten off track somewhere about baptism is we have made it about us instead of about God. What we do instead of what he is doing, will do, and has done. So there's no such thing as infant and adult baptism, by the way. It's all just baptism. We make the distinction because somewhere around the fourth century it got all tangled up. And so I'm not going to be able to convince you that infant baptism, as you're going to witness it, and I'm using that term for your sake, is valid. I don't have time for that. But I do want you to, regardless of what you think about the validity of this, to remember your own. And remember what Christ has done for you and let it at least be a means of grace in that regard, even if you think I am drastically wrong in so doing. Let that be my lot to bear. <laughs>